Let's turn now to Paul's letter to Philippians and to chapter number 3 and the beginning of 4. And we can read the first verse in chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now we continue to seek to find some parting counsel from the words of Paul as we uh, draw near to uh, what will be the close of my ministry here with you in the congregation. And we are doing so reflecting on Paul's own life, who spent 33 years serving as master and who had such a ministry in so many different congregations and with so many different people. And during that ministry in the providence of God, he was imprisoned twice. He was imprisoned in AD 60, and he was imprisoned in AD 66. And these periods, of course, like any kind of imprisonment, they give you a time for reflection, a time to think about yourself, and a time to think about other people and issues of life in general. And it is during that first imprisonment that he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. And we see from the end of the book of Acts that he was two whole years under house arrest, as it were, in Rome. And there he was speaking the gospel to those around him under house arrest. And he was also writing letters to those churches that were close to his heart. And when we read this letter, as we have noticed before, it, the beginning of the letter shows to us that the very special place this church had in his heart. As soon as he starts writing and introduces himself, he launches in to tell them how much he gives God thanks for them. It's a wonderful beginning to the letter, and that spirit follows through the whole of the letter. We can see the way in which he addresses their difficulties and their challenges, their suffering for the gospel in in Philippi, in Macedonia, and the Roman Empire, and the way in which they are to be encouraged in the Lord to follow his own example and the example of the Lord Jesus. And and in chapter 2, he gives a a portrait of the Lord Jesus himself. In chapter 3, he gives us a portrait of his own life and looking at the, the choices that he made and looking at why he made these choices and looking at the things that are really important in his own life, that Christ is at the very centre of that life. And today I want to look at these verses in verse 17 down at the beginning of chapter 4, and to think of a plea for a heaven-inspired Christian living. I want to think, first of all, of the example. And that's how the section begins at verse number 17, Brothers, join in imitating me. He is exhorting them to follow his own example, asking them to do what he has done himself. It's remarkable that he can do that, but he can do that because of his confidence that he has walked faithfully in following the Lord Jesus and every step that he has taken that he can now call on others to follow in these same footsteps. 
And Paul came out of, of a heritage where, where those who were learning, those who were being taught, it wasn't simply that they learned all the lessons, that they were under instruction. It was that that, that instruction and these lessons resulted in, in them practicing these very things in their own lives so that they were walking the same footsteps. The teacher was there and the teacher taught and they learned and they walked in, in the footsteps of the teacher. And so Paul is calling upon them to follow his example. And when we ask what, what the, that example is, we can see from, from this chapter himself that he made one life-defining decision. And in chapter, in verse number 8, he suffered the loss of all things so that he might gain Christ. Example number one, life's important decisions and how these define the rest of the way in which we're going to live our lives. And once he made that choice, there was only one way he was going to go. His orientation was completely in following the Lord Jesus. And not simply in following the Lord Jesus, but as we can read from, from verse 13 onwards, his life was focused on going to heaven. And his life was focused in such a way that his energy, that he's straining forward, all of his energy is being spent in pressing on in response to God's heavenly call, in pressing on to reach the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And whilst he is doing that, he is doing what every athlete will do, forgetting the things that have gone behind and pressing on towards the mark. Whatever happened before he was converted, whatever happened since he was converted, he was ready to keep his focus on where he was going to and not where he had come from. Follow my example. Join in imitating me. And today that's God's call for, for, for you and for me. Let's hear the word of God. Let's hear the choices that Paul made. Let's hear the direction that his life took. And let's ask ourselves, how is our own life orientated? How is our, the direction of our own life today? Have we made these crucial choices in life that, that demonstrate, that give evidence of the fact that there is that inner change in our lives that leaves us compelled to follow the Lord Jesus. And we read these words of, of Paul and he's saying that he is pressing on to, to make Jesus and heaven his own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He has a real sense of, of belonging to Christ and now of Christ belonging to him and the rights that he has as someone who belongs to Christ and to us Christ in his heart. And he wants them to take particular care. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. They are to watch carefully as they live their lives. And that's so often your problem and mine. We are not watchful and we are not careful. 
We are too easily distracted. And he wants us to, to keep our focus, not just on him, but as if it were for every other Christian believer that lives in your own generation. All those who walk after the example of Paul, keep your eyes on them. If they are faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ as Paul was, then that's where our eyes need to be. Because as sure as anything, if we do that, if they are following in the footsteps of Jesus and we are following in their footsteps, then we are going in the right direction. Then, then we, are, we are following the path that was in the mind of the psalmist in Psalm 84. He was looking where God was and knew that's where he wanted to go. And he was even envying the birds that were, that were nesting at, at the tabernacle of God. It's sensing that, that what you see in, in Jesus and what you see in Paul and what you see in every other Christian, keep your eyes firmly fixed upon them. And it also, of course, calls for all of us who are the people of God to ensure that our footsteps are the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, to ensure that we are following his paths, following Paul's paths and the paths of the Lord Jesus. And then, what a blessing that is for everyone else that they can look at, at you as a, as a Christian believer and follow these footsteps that you leave behind, seeing where you are heading, seeing where you have come from, seeing the decisions that you have made, and to, and to sense that, that burning ambition, if we can put it like that, that burning ambition to know more of Jesus Christ, that burning ambition to be with Jesus Christ, and that burning ambition to give yourself to the service of Jesus in this world as long as we are here. So there's that example that they must follow. And when he asks them to follow that example, he is concerned that there is a threat. There is a, a, a cultural contrast. Here are the people of God and they are living their lives in a particular way. They are going in a particular direction. But he tells them in verse number 18, for many of whom I have told you and now tell you in with tears, walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. In Philippi, there were those who were committed Christians struggling with everyday issues. There were also those in Philippi who were not committed Christians and, and who were not prepared to struggle for their faith. And he describes them here as those who are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul himself, in, in writing to Romans, he speaks of the way in which the, the, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. If we're focused upon ourselves and upon this world, then we are the enemies of God. And he says to the church in Corinth that, that for people like that, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. They weren't captivated the way Paul was. They didn't have that burning ambition to be with Christ because they didn't love Christ because they were the enemies of God. And when he's calling them to, to follow his own example, 
in following the Lord Jesus. He is aware of this constant threat around them in Philippi, the threat that comes from another example, and another example that in itself can be powerful. And let's be frank today. The example of the world can be a powerful attraction. We can come under the gospel of Jesus and we can have that faith in Jesus that that we spoke of when we were speaking to the children. We we can have that sense of faith. But but sometimes the the attraction of the world and of a, a culture that is increasingly secularized, sometimes that attraction can be so powerful that it tends to overshadow in our minds the attraction of Christ. And it not only leaves us being pulled in, in two directions, but so often it will result in us being pulled away from the Lord Jesus and pulled towards the secular culture in which we live and drawn away from devotion to Christ. And we can see that as, as Paul speaks here of the, of, of the way in which the, their minds are set on earthly things. As we read this letter, there's one thing that seems to be crystal clear. And that is, they had no problem with the teaching of the Bible. They had no problem with the doctrines of salvation. They had no problem with what Paul was teaching. But their problem was with the kind of life that Paul wanted them to live. And we can be here today and we can say that we believe in the Bible. We can say that we believe in the Lord Jesus. We can say that we believe that we're saved by grace alone. We can say that believe that God gives forgiveness on the basis of the work of our Jesus. We have grown up with the doctrine. We don't deny the doctrine. We believe the doctrine. But the problem is that just like the people in Philippi, they believed the doctrine, but their lives didn't live up to the doctrine that they believed. And they were those whose God was their belly, who gloried in their shame, who minded earthly things. Paul had his joy in, in, in following the Lord Jesus. This group referred to here, they had their joy in following the ways of the, the culture in, in the Roman Empire that was at enmity with God. And Paul saw that as a great threat to them, uh, to their belonging to the church of, of, of Christ in Philippi. And so when he's calling for them to, to follow his example, he wants them to understand the pull and the power of the culture in which they live that is anti-holiness of life that Paul, recall, Paul calls for in the gospel. Anti that commitment to God that seems to suggest so much freedom without realizing that it's telos, it's end is destruction. Paul is on the way to heaven, to the paradise of God. The example that they have to be on their guard against is the example of those 
who live a life different to the, way, to the life that he lives. And because of the kind of life that they are living, they are destined to the destruction of a lost eternity. And despite what they know about Paul's gospel, they live their lives in a direction that can only take them to that place of lostness. And so today, let's hear the example. Let's follow the example of Paul. Let's be good examples ourselves that we may, in the providence of God, be the means of helping others to get their foot on the path and and follow in the footsteps of Paul and to guard against being those who can be a distraction and can lead others away from the truths that we know ourselves to be true and to be the word of God. The example. Secondly, we have the expectation. Paul is running the race. Paul is obsessed with getting to be with Christ in heaven. And he wants them to understand their identity. And here they are in the Roman Empire, in Macedonia, a colony of, of, of Rome, living under that kind of culture, suffering because of their faith, in so many ways being trying to, uh, suffering persecution because of their faith, and persecution that is driven in order to take their faith away and to stop them practicing their faith. And as those who are Roman citizens, as Paul himself said he was, he wants them to recognize their true identity. In verse number 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. The government under which we live our lives, the rights that we have, the protections given to us, the responsibilities that we have, the respect that we should show, all of these things belong primarily not to the emperor who sits in Rome, whether that is Nero or someone else, but that it belongs to the Lord of glory who sits in heaven. And heaven for Paul is is the place into which Christ has entered. It's the place where Christ has been raised up and glorified and enthroned at God's right hand. Your citizenship is in heaven. The whole orientation of your life is towards the laws of the kingdom of God. And you are to understand your your rights and your privileges and your protection as it comes from the government that is constituted by God at his own throne under the rule of his king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what news that was for them. Their fear was of the great enemy, the Roman emperor. Their their fear was of, of all those who served him and all those who saw the emperor as himself a savior or the savior and all those who, who called the emperor Lord. Here they are reminded that their citizenship is not there. It is in heaven where Christ is. And we need to be sure about our own identity today. We struggle on through life so often. 
not asking who we are, but trying to figure out what to do and what is our responsibility in this area and what we should listen to and what we should choose to do. Things that are truly important, but they are understood better when we understand our identity, that our choices are made under the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are responsible to him and that we live and serve in his kingdom and subject to his rules and to his authority, our citizenship. Who today do you think you are? Your identity is on your passport. You have your UK citizenship. That's important. You understand what your rights are under the UK government and under the king. But do you understand your identity as the child of God, as the child who has faith in your heart, and as the child who travels in God's kingdom, and as the child of God who knows the protection that Jesus offers, knows the love with which he has saved you, and, and knows the, and understands the, the way in which all of the children of God long to be with Jesus. Because that's the way in which Paul develops the, the, the whole sense of citizenship. Jesus is not going to be remote forever. And that's a powerful message for them, a reminder to them. that citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. The distance will be removed. The Son of God will, will descend from heaven. And he will come at last to, to save his people. And we saw last week when we listened to Dr. Adam speaking to us from Isaiah chapter 25. And we saw the way in which the people of God were waiting for God. And when he came, behold, this is the God of our salvation. We have waited for him. He has come to save us. That is, there was that expectation with him. And today, as, as those who are the citizens of heaven, we have that expectation in our hearts. If we understand our identity, we understand how much it's wrapped up in the passion of Jesus, and we understand how important it is to, to recognize that because it has consequences going into the future. Waiting for a saviour. And that shows to us that there's a waiting in two senses. Or a waiting for, for two events. And today you might be waiting for, for the, the singular event of, of Jesus coming to save you. Seeking the Lord in your heart and recognizing your desperate need of, of knowing that kind of salvation that only he can give and there's that, there's that waiting for the Lord. As the psalmist says, my, my soul, my heart would have fainted unless I had believed the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And you're driven every day by a sense of your desire to, to, to know the Lord Jesus. Waiting for the, the moment when the light will shine and you will see his glory. But there is this also this 
secondary event that as soon as we come to to discover the Lord Jesus as our Savior, then there is not only a light that goes on in our hearts, but we see a light in our future. And it is the glory of Christ coming to save us at last and coming to rescue us from the sinful world where there are empires like the Roman Empire, where there are governments who are ungodly and where there are governments who restrict and seek to, to remove and to erase the very witness of the people of God. It's all going to come to an end because we await a saviour from heaven, the Lord Jesus. And that saviour who comes from heaven, Paul is looking to him and waiting for him because of the great change that was going to take place. Since the day Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was aware of one thing amongst many others. He was aware of how frail he was in his body. He was aware of how every day he was dying. He was aware of how every day, everything that he suffered in the world and suffered for the sake of Jesus was wearing his body down. And that's why he says in 2 Corinthians 4 that day by day his body was wasting away. We don't have pictures of what he looked like. But from what he says himself and the expression he gives us experience, he was showing his age and a lot more because he suffered repeatedly for, for the service of Christ. And because of that, and because of, of his longing to be with Jesus, he, he's looking forward to this transformation. Transform your our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The day will come when the aging and aged Paul will be transformed. There will be no more wrinkles from the way in which he faced the storms of life and the storms of faith. He, he will rise with that transformed body that will be like the body of Jesus. Raised, he says, a spiritual body with that new life of the new kingdom of God entering into the fullness of the enjoyment of, of the life that Jesus has purchased for his people. Our lowly body, the one that's in a state of humiliation, the one that I, I feel so much nothing in, in it, but apart from the grace of God himself, the body which I carry, and the more I carry it, the more it becomes a burden. And the more is that, that, that sense of longing that the day will come when the body will no longer be a burden, but when it will be a glory, because it will be like the glorious body of my Savior. The expectation. What's your own expectation of the end? We saw the way in which there are those whose end is destruction. And here now we see the glorious contrast of those who will be like Jesus when the trumpet sounds and we will all be changed and we will stand up in glory with him. The expectation. 
And finally, there is the endearment. And here is one of the places where Paul's relationship with his church in Philippi shines through all that he is saying to them. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, he sees them as those who are in his own family, because they are in the family of God, because they, they came to faith in Jesus Christ in the gospel. They have the Spirit of God in their hearts, that they are, they are my brothers. And when he speaks to them as those who, who are my brothers, there's a sense of intimacy in the way in which he embraces them. And it is that intimacy that leaves him, leaves him so concerned for them. And in that intimacy, whom I love and long for. He loves them with the whole of his being. He yearns for them all, we read in chapter 1. And he, he longs for them, desires the best for them. They are my joy and my crown. My brothers, my joy and my crown. And he sees them today as those who are in God's family with him. And he has spoken of the way in which he looks for the return of the Lord Jesus. And as well as seeing them as those who are God's children with him, he sees them also in another place. And he sees them as his joy and crown when he comes to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And he will know them there as his joy and his crown. As those who came to know the Lord through his ministry in, in Acts chapter 16 and onwards. As those who he allowed and enabled them to, to, build, to be built up in their faith. Who showed in his life his love for them and his desire for them and after them. And he is looking forward to the day when whatever happens between his imprisonment in AD 62 and his departure from the world, from whatever happens, that on that day there will be his joy and his crown in the presence of Christ Jesus. And in coming to close today, I want us to think about that. These words give such a, a beautiful expression of, of the relationship that we have in the gospel. A beautiful expression of the way in which there is that love that desires salvation in this present world. And there is that, the, that beautiful expression of the way in which that all comes together with a real desire. Not just that we will be blessed under the gospel here but that you and I will be together in that day of glory around the judgment seat of Christ. Having loved the Lord Jesus, having loved one another, and in the kingdom of God, learning about our citizenship, and coming at last to see, yes, we were there, but now we are here. We were there together, and now we are here together. And what a glorious prospect that surely is, that no matter what, 
will be with Christ, which is better by far. And because of that, he wants them to stand for him. To be unmovable, to be constant, to stand for him in the Lord. And today that's the closing remarks and exhortation of our time together today. Stand firm. The storms of the life of faith, the storms of a, a secular world, the storms of the sin of our own heart, powerful storms that, that we will face every day that we live as long as we are in this world. But let's ensure that we stand firm in the Lord. There is nowhere else to stand for him. And that's why Paul prays and longs for himself in, in verse number 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. To know him, to be found in him. And let's ensure today that we are found in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have our heavenly citizenship and that we have all of these hopes and expectations and longings, not just for ourselves. It's great to have them for ourselves, but to have them for each other. My brothers, my, my, those who my love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. May God enable us to stand for him and may he bless his word to us. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we do rejoice in you as the God who does begin a good work in the hearts of your people. As the God who gives to them to see your glory and who, who gives to them in their hearts to be attracted by you in such a way as to leave everything else behind. And so we pray that you bless your word to us today. Give to us a sense of seeking to follow the example of the people of God, giving to us a sense of the great expectation of your people as they journey on to be with you, and a sense of that endearment in the gospel that will give us to love one another in the Lord all the days of our lives with the expectation that one day we will join, be joined together around your throne in the glory that awaits the whole people of God. So hear our prayer and bless your word we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Closing Psalm is Psalm number 26 and sing Psalms on page 31 and at verse number 7. Psalm 26 and sing Psalms on page 31. And verse 7 I'll tell of all your awesome deeds, proclaiming loud your praise. Your glory fills your dwelling place. I love your house always. To the end of the psalm, to God's praise. I'll tell of
Stand for the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>